Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And today we're going to be talking about a a pretty important criminal code reform proposal that's in the legislature uh, that would send many people who are sentenced to low-level crimes now, low-level felonies, to uh, the county level rather than the state prisons. The effort would, in theory, reduce prison populations, but some county officials feel that they could be burdened uh, without proper funding to uh, build uh, all the support programs that they'll need. So we're going to be talking about that through the next uh, 58 minutes or so. If you, uh, if you want to join us, I'll tell you who's here that you can talk to, Linda Brady, who is the Monroe County Probation Department's Chief Probation Officer, Representative Matt Pierce, who is the co-author of House Bill 1006, which is the bill that we're, we're going to be talking about, and also Jill Matheny-Fuqua is here. She's Director of the Indiana Addictions Issues Coalition in Indianapolis. So if you have questions or comments, please join us at 855 or 1-877-285-9348 if you're outside of the local area, or you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can even follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So now we've got all that out of the way, welcome to everybody. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Matt, Matt, it's great to have you back. Good to be here. To explain what's going on up there at the State House, a little different kind of year for for you and everybody. Yep. Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk about uh, this bill, House Bill 1006, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. what exactly are you trying to do with that? Well, it, this whole project started um, about 2009 when a sudden light bulb went off over the heads of a lot of legislators, um, ranging from liberals to conservatives, who recognized, like a lot of states, their prison populations were really escalating. And you could see that it was on an unsustainable path. You were just going to have to build more and more prisons, and that was really going to cost the state billions of dollars. At the same time, other states had instituted some of their own reforms and were showing through some scientific you know, study and evidence that there was actually a more effective way to deal with um, low-level nonviolent criminals to keep them from cycling in and out of the prison. The the Department of Corrections people call that recidivism when you kind of come back into the system. So we embarked on this process to, to study the system, and the Pew Center on the states came in and spent a lot of money helping us analyze the system, and we put something together, and we couldn't quite get people to coalesce around it, so we kind of came back to the drawing board. We then had um, one of the centers at IUPY spend a lot of time really trying to get into the data because we found out that we just don't really have good data about what's happening where and how. And that kind of came together. And what we figured out is that a lot of people in the system, as you might imagine, have substance abuse problems, mental health issues, underlying causes of the crime that really weren't getting at. Because the current system, you get sentenced to what they call a Class D felony, And by the time you end up in the Department of Corrections, you may only have six months or a year to serve. And what DOC is saying is that's not enough time to really process people in, get them into some kind of program that's going to get at the underlying cause of their behavior, and then they just come right back into our communities with nothing really changed. And surprise, you know, if you have a drug addiction and you need to sell some drugs to get some drugs, you're going to keep doing that. If you need to steal somebody's laptop computer to get the money to feed your habit, you're going to keep doing that. If you have mental health issues that impact your behavior, that's still going to be there. So what we essentially did with this bill is we said, okay, let's change kind of the whole approach to how we do things. Let's make sure we have plenty of room for the violent kind of predator people we're really afraid of that we've got to keep out of society because they're going to harm people. Let's make sure there's plenty of room for them. And, in fact, we enhance their penalties a bit to isolate them from society. On the middle level of crimes, which you right now call B and C felonies, these crimes, we basically said, let's make sure the sentences are proportionate and that everything kind of makes sense because – What's happened is the legislature has been amending all these criminal laws like one crime at a time for 30 or 40 years, and no one was looking at the big picture. And 
most legislators think that if you want to stop crime, you just increase the penalty. And they think it's almost like for every year you increase the penalty, the crime goes down, which there's no evidence for that. So the idea is that we're going to have deterrence with really heavy enhancements. And so that's not proven to be true. So we try to dial back those enhancements and make things more, things more proportionate. And then for those what we call Class D felons right now, the nonviolent Offenders who've committed some serious crimes, more than misdemeanors, but not the kind of crimes you'd be, you know, afraid of people necessarily. We keep the idea is to keep them in the community and put them under what's called intensive supervision. And this would be done through the probation department. And the idea is that you really work with people to change their behavior. So if you have um, drug abuse issues, we're going to get you in the treatment. We're going to try to get you employed in some job. We're going to break the cycle of trying to get away from your friends who might drag you back into the same behavior again, get you more connected with your family if there's family around, and really kind of push you and ride you to do the right things. Mm -hmm. And that's why they call it intensive supervision. That's much different from what happens in a lot of places now with probation where it's really more of check in at this time, take your drug test, and then if you goof up, we just send you to the DOC and then you sit there for three or four months to finish out your sentence. Then you come back and same problems are there. Mm -hmm. So that's the basic underlying idea. Okay. Well, a couple of uh, specific follow-ups before we get to to Jill and Linda and Mary Catherine. Um, I, I know that um, right now we have A, B, C, and D felonies, and this would expand that to, to six different um, areas? Right? Yeah, what we found, and I guess the other thing I should point out, too, the reason why I like this bill so much is it wasn't really written by legislators because legislators are usually not experts on what they're dealing with. They just kind of have to learn from other people. And what we did with the commission is we said, okay, let's take the key people who work in the system and lock them in a room and have them figure it out. So we put the prosecutors and the defense counsel with some judges and other stakeholders, and we said, you guys figure this out. Here's the broad goals we want to achieve. You figure out how to put this together. And in the process of that, they went through every crime line by line. Unbelievable job. And they discovered that to make things proportionate, to really make sure the sentence fits the crime, it's hard to do with only four levels. They said we really need a couple other levels. So we're going to switch from four felony levels of A through D to six levels of felony one through six. And that allows you to, in those kind of mid-range crimes, to fine-tune them or calibrate the mm -hmm. sentences better to fit the crime. All right. Good. So we're, uh, we're talking about the comprehensive plans to uh, – to reform um, the state's justice system, basically. So mm -hmm. if you want to call us, you can call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And uh, you can join the, li the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Oh, I just would add that there is also additional information at that same uh, web address that Bob just offered if you want a little, a little more background. So if you want to follow up after the show, that will be available online as well. Just one click. Thank you. Well, I know, you know, we've had uh, sh various sheriffs and prosecutors and whatnot in here before. And I know one of the things they always talk about is how, how many people who are in our jail systems and our prison systems are, have addiction mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. So, Joe, could you, you address that and talk about how this, this reform might help, um, I guess, treat people who have addictions rather than just lock them away. Right. We're real excited about this bill because of that. Because um, like Representative Pierce was saying, the goal is to hold people accountable locally and then get that intensive supervision and treatment, which is so important. 79% uh, of those people that are in DOC or on parole have a chronic addiction. That's chronic. And so, What's that percentage again? 79%. 79, okay. That's, that's and so it would stand to reason that a lot of the folks we're dealing with at the local level also have an addiction issue. And so, like he had already stated, Representative Pierce, treatment's not available if you're in the Department of Correction for less than one year. And so what's exciting about this is that um, we will have increased access to treatment so we can help folks stop the recycle of uh, recidivism. Mm -hmm. And and, and Linda, you know, in probation, mm -hmm. I'm sure you see a lot of a lot of this too. And I'm, yes. I'm really interested to have you follow up on what Matt was saying about this this new intensive probation. How that's going to change your job? Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk mm -hmm. about that. Actually, because I, I, I'm aware that intensive 
probation programs have have a really bad history in the United States in terms of their success, in terms of uh, reducing recidivism. And that's because they focus on catching people. You, you do more supervision, and so you catch them doing more mm-hmm. things. You're in their home more mm-hmm. often. But what they found is if you pair intensive supervision with treatment, then you reduce recidivism. So you get what you're, what you're after. So it's important to me and to, to people in probation that we don't just do the supervision piece, the, the um, monitoring piece, but we do the treatment piece mm-hmm. as well. That will impact recidivism. Right. Now, there are a lot of different directions we can go with this, but I, I want to start, I guess, after this uh, sort of overview with the money part of it. Because if you're going to be expecting more out of the probation department, there would seem to me there need to be money to go with that. Is that part of the bill? Um, the money is absolutely essential, and there's a little bit of money in there, but it's not much more than maybe a good faith offering that we recognize the issue, and we're working to get a little bit more in the bill. The This kind of national movement of switching to the system that's already been done in a few states is called justice reinvestment. And so the basic premise is if you don't have to send as many people off the DOC and you don't have them coming back again and again, you will need less prison space. And the problem is every time we get another 2,900 people in the system, we have to build a new prison. And that's hundreds, you know, more than $100 million to build a prison. And then I'm told it's like 30 or $40 million a year just to keep that prison going. So if you can avoid having to build another prison and run it every year, I mean, that's tens of millions of dollars you're saving. So the theory is you can take some of that money and you can reprogram it down to local level where it's needed where you're going to have the real job getting done. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the transition we're kind of in. Now, another thing about this bill that's a little unique is normally when you pass a bill in the legislature, it becomes effective July 1st of the year in which you pass it. We've delayed the the effective date of this whole thing until 2014, till July 1 of 2014. Because we know that when you have a bill this big, there's always going to be a few glitches, a few things you didn't quite get right, and we want to give everybody you know, the summer to look at it, digest it, and then we'll probably have another bill come through in the short session that makes some adjustments or some tweaks to it. So the new sentencing, the new scheme will really not take effect till July 1 of 2014. And then, of course, it's going to take a while for people as they commit the crimes to kind of get in the system. So there's a little bit of time to scale up, maybe not a whole lot, but there's there's some there. So I think that the issue we're having with the ways and means people, the money people, and I haven't had a chance to talk to the Senate finance people on the Senate side, is there the attempt to quantify the savings is a bit difficult because you the judges have a lot of discretion in this new system, and you have to make some assumptions about things. And we sat down and had a discussion with the Department of Correction. There were like six or seven different trend lines from you know all kinds of savings to like it costs us more. I mean, there's all <laughs> kinds of ways you can analyze it. And so I I think the Ways and Means people kind of looked at it and said, well, we're going to do some things like help pay for um, a probation officer down in the county, have the state take that over. And we're going to, they found some money from some bail bonds licensing fees or something, which I'd never heard of. And they put a little bit of that in there. And so at least they're kind of putting a marker in there that we need to do something. I'm hoping to get that seed money. You kind of have to prime the pump. I'm hoping to get that enhanced over in the Senate into the final budget, and then the real money is going to have to flow as the savings comes online from not having people in DOC get it back down to the county level. Yeah. Well, it sounds as if, you know, in order to – sometimes you have to invest up front to get things going. Exactly. And it sounds like maybe that investment money isn't – And and that's exactly – I I remember being in the – the bill passed um, unanimously out of the courts committee, and then it got referred to Ways and Means because it had appropriations in it. And when we got there, um, I remember my most vivid memory from the hearing is I was sitting there and I was looking up at Representative Tim Brown, Dr. Brown, who chairs the committee now, and I said, we will have to prime the pump a bit to get this new process going. And he looked at me with one of these knowingly smiles, like, I've heard this all before, and (laughs) I hope there are really savings there. So we're we're educating people right now. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, and I also want to ask you, Madam, I and you've been in the legislature for how long now? About well, it's my eleventh year. Your eleventh year uh, is. Uh, this seems like a, a very comprehensive bill and a very large, um, large air, uh, issue to 
to tackle. Is it the most comprehensive thing you've worked on? Absolutely, and we've been at it four or five years, and we've had some frustrating moments. But the thing that's most amazing is this bill is so totally atypical from anything else I've ever dealt with in the legislature because I've already said, one, it's really being driven by people in the system. We've kind of let the people in the system. We've set the goals. We let them tell us the way to, to get the job done. And then secondly, if you look back over the last four or five years, these are not have been happy times in the legislature, right? We've, mm-hmm. we've been, you know, pra- I, I've said we practically had knife fights in the middle of the House chamber, <laughs> bloody knife fights mm-hmm. over things. And while all that was going on, at the same time, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals were all working collegially together to make this happen. And this stuff is political dynamite because you all can, if you remember back to 1988, you have Willie Horton ads, mm-hmm. you know, the best attack you can make on somebody election time is they're not going to keep you safe and they've let the criminals off or they don't care about meth labs or whatever. So it's very easy for this to become politicized. And the most amazing thing is both Democrats and Republicans are like, we cannot allow politics to invade this. We have to keep on point and keep at it. And we have people like Brent Steele from Bedford in the Senate. I don't agree with him on probably 10 percent of things that go on in the legislature, and yet we are totally on the same page on getting this done, mm-hmm. and, and we're working through it. So to me, it's a complete joy for a policy wonk because you can just get to the issues, and we've managed so far to keep most of the politics out of it. So this is, as you said earlier in the show, in direct response to the huge uh, amount of prisons that were forecasted to mm-hmm. be needed. Give us a little more background on that as far as how that was going to affect the budget and and really every citizen of the state. Yeah, the interesting thing is if you go back and look at the trend lines over the past 30 or 40 years, there's been a consistent 4% increase year after year in our prison population. And the trend line was such that we were going to have to build a bunch of new prisons if it kept up at that that trend, uh-huh. and it's literally going to cost the state billions of dollars. And I think what, what percentage of our state budget was that going to represent? I, I, was, I knew that at some point, and I know it was a huge percentage. Yeah, you know, I don't have that number okay. off the top of my higher head. Higher than so education, that, higher than yeah it, yeah, it would basically outstrip. It would definitely outstrip other other things. And so, you know, everybody kind of concluded we can't keep doing it this way. And then the other fear was we looked at California. If you remember what happened there a couple years ago. I mean, they just kept packing people in there, and finally the court said, look, you're violating people's constitutional rights by stacking them up like firewood in these prisons, and you can't do it. And so then they had to let people out pretty much willy-nilly. I mean, they didn't have – they just had to empty the place out to get down to the level that the courts ordered. So they put a lot of people on the street that they didn't really want on the street because they felt they really were violent. And so we said we've got to be proactive and make sure we never get in a situation – of California where you just can't afford to build the prisons anymore, but you've got people you want out of society to protect society. And so I think that's how you're able to kind of get this um, ability to kind of reach out to both sides of the political aisle. You know, people Mm -hmm. who maybe look at justice system should be more restorative, and you have other people more looking at practically how do we keep the bad guys off the street. And those um, interests came together. Yeah. All right, our phone numbers again, 855-0811 and 1-877-285-9348. From outside of the local calling area, you can join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. And, Linda, I know you've, you're in touch with a lot of probation departments from outside of yes. Monroe County, um, some of those in that second phone number I mm-hmm. gave. So uh, what are you hearing from, from people in the other counties that you talk to, maybe even some of the smaller counties who, you know, they hear this uh, notion mm-hmm. of, of this more intensive workload they might have. Mm-hmm. Are they prepared for it? They're not prepared for it. They're very concerned mm-hmm. about it. Uh, Popeye, which is the Probation Officers Professional Association of Indiana, but, uh, known as Popeye. I'm the vice president of Popeye. Uh-huh. And we had a project where we were actually asked by the judges' probation committee at the judicial conference to call all the chief probation officers in the state and ask them you know, what their issues are, what their budgets are, what their concerns are. And I got to hear from a lot of chief probation officers. And I'm talking about some small shops where it's a one- or two-person office where the chief probation officer is the probation officer. Mm-hmm. They don't have the resources to, to implement something like this. But even in a department like ours where we have a fair number of probation officers, we have 45, our caseloads in adult are about 120, between 100 and 120. To do this effectively, if you were talking about an intensive caseload supervision, you're talking about 30. So how do you how do you do that with existing resources? The answer is you can't with with existing resources. We would need more probation officers. Right. 
are you is this something that would also include hiring addiction specialists um, like having them on the county payroll or how does all that shake out because clearly you know the addictions treatment is is such mm-hmm. a huge part of this well I don't know so much addiction specialists but for example in our county our probation department is also a certified alcohol and drug program and so we do alcohol and drug assessments and refer to uh, certified treatment providers we don't provide the treatment but we re- refer people to the correct type of treatment that they need but okay. not all counties have that kind of program um, and it would be nice if all counties did not all counties have community corrections programs mm-hmm. so there's there's a lot of, of gap mm-hmm. and one of my probation officers not one several mentioned to me trying to do more intensive work with offenders takes more time mm-hmm. you, you, you can't be hey have you paid your fees and did you go to treatment did you do your road crew you, you have to take more time with the offender to get at what's uh, causing them to offend. So at least double the amount of time that they're uh, used to spending with offenders. But the, the treatment piece, we wouldn't have to to actually deliver that. We just have to be in a position to get people and broker to the right services. Mm-hmm. And are those privately provided services or, or you know, how does that work? Where do those come from? Well, it's in statute that it, they have to be certified by the Division of Mental Health and Addiction. So you, you know that you're getting good quality treatment. They just started licensing addictions counselors. So, But they're pro- for-profit organizations. Non-profit, yeah. a lot of them. Some. Okay, so it's a mixture. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a mixture that we use even for now here in Monroe County, for example. Centerstone is not-for-profit. Amethyst House, not-for-profit. We use them a lot. Mm -hmm. But we also have some private providers. Um, Beth York would be one that comes to mind, Elizabeth York. So we we have a mixture. depends on Mm -hmm. what the person's needs are and what programs are available. Okay. Okay, we have a couple callers we're going to try to get to before our break. Uh, Stan is first. Stan? Hi. uh, There's no question that all these services are, are beneficial and needed. Uh, I would like to bring up uh, something that, that's to one side. I've, I've become very bothered about uh, suggestions that uh, if, if citizens are owed a $50 to $100 refund for some error in government, the cost of producing that check and, and, and doing the paperwork is, is pure waste. I would rather see those funds diverted to programs such as you're talking about, and I would like to see legislators take up that basic question, not wasting money. That's all I wanted to say. All right, Stan. Matt? Well, that that is a fundamental question for the legislature this year in the budget. As you know, Governor Pence would like for us to have a 10% income tax cut, and, you know, that's like $500 million to $700 million, I think I've heard. And so... You know, some people will say that's great. I like small government and we'll stimulate the economy by getting that money back into the pockets of the people to spend. And then there are other of us who say, you know, gee, just look at everything going on. Developmentally disabled, 10 year wait list for the waiver list. We heard about that forever. Our schools could use more money. I mean, there are an awful lot of things got done. And this project needs to be properly funded, which will save you money in the long run if you invest in it the right way on the front end. And so we're going to have to, you know, think that through. And, and I'm heartened that the Republicans just didn't automatically say, oh, yeah, we got to do that because that's what Republicans do. We cut taxes. And so, um, you know, I think they'll probably give away some revenue in the final budget because they got to give the governor something he can claim as a victory. But I'm hoping that it's not so significant that it robs these programs that need to be funded. Mm-hmm. All right. We have a second phone call uh, for the program. Bob is next. Bob. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, one of the things I'd like to suggest is that while the process that you've described is, seems thorough and, and you've got the politics all there, it doesn't really address the issue of, of stemming the, the, the flow of people getting into the system. And um, I'm a psychologist. I've been, for the past 27 years and probably over 20,000 people, I've been doing evaluation work for um, a number of state agencies. And one of the things I can tell you about prison population is that <clears throat> there's, um, a high percentage of individuals who have learning disabilities. And, and what I'd like to suggest is that if you really want to stem the flow of people, that the same process that you've applied to the criminal system, minus the politics, might be applied to the school system to, to stop people at that point in time, to, to, to prevent them from getting into the system, because people with learning disabilities tend not to be engaged in school. And if you can change that process, you might well affect the actual numbers of people who could get into the criminal system. That's, that's my comment, and you, you can uh, 
take that as okay. wish. All right, Bob. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you. Do you yeah, want to respond uh, to that, Matt? He, he's absolutely right. I know, I know that um, Mayor Cruzan, when he was in the legislature as representative Cruzan, I've heard him say many a time that the Department of Corrections estimates the amount of prison space they might need by the number of at-risk kids in our school system. So there's no doubt that if you can get to those kids early and get them on the right track, you're going to save yourself a lot of cost down the line, which is why you need to invest in your school. So we have a whole debate about that. And haven't I heard that uh, the, the number is, you know, some statistics like from the third grade? I mean, those are yeah, really yeah. I, th- I think that I think there was once a Department of Corrections person said he just basically, you know, he was the director. He just looked at the third grade number of at-risk kids in the third grade, and he would do the math on the years for them to grow up, and that's when he knew they would arrive into the system. And that's sad and scary, but it just shows that. All the arguments we have over education and how to do it are worth it, and we need to get it right. We have a lot to talk about in the second half Mm -hmm. of our program, but we're going to have to take a break. Uh, You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia. And short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU news team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. debate in the house really but we're, we were just having a, this conversation i'm sorry we, we couldn't stop we forgot uh, we we're doing a radio show right just, uh yeah welcome back to noon edition it's uh that was our our break time that was uh, matt pierce one of our guests today representative matt pierce co-author of house bill 1006 which contains large criminal code reform proposals in it we have two other guests linda brady the Monroe County Probation Department's Chief Probation Officer, and Jill Matheny-Fuqua, who is the Director of Indiana Addictions Issues Coalition in Indianapolis. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. You can join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Um, we're gonna. I'm, I'm gonna go to Jill first. I mean, you've got you've got ideas for how we might uh, provide some more funding. Right, funding is critical to the success of this endeavor because we've got to have money to help support treatment and supportive wraparound services to help folks initiate and sustain recovery because we do know recovery is possible. And so what's been floated before is an alcohol tax increase. The tax on beer has not been raised since 1981. 1981. That's and so, yeah. And if we would just tax five cents per drink, we could generate $120 million for prevention and treatment. And How do right you define now, drink per bottle or? Yeah. Per beer. Per beer. Mm-hmm. A nickel a beer. Yep. And I'm. it just doesn't seem like it's that irrational of an idea right. because it's a nickel. Yeah. And so all is, the good it could do. So is there a, is there a bill uh, in the... <laughs> There, there is not, and, and what I was saying during the break is the interesting thing is there's, there's literally like no support for that in the legislature, and it's, it's a, I'm not quite sure why that that debate has always seemed to have been in the Senate for some reason. That's where it seems to come up. So I haven't had the the kind of direct input from all of the lobbyists and people interested in the issue. So I've kind of heard it secondhand, but um, it doesn't seem to me like it would hobble the beer industry if you paid an extra nickel of beer, but I think they, they definitely have concerns about it. They've raised it. And I think there are some people who think that maybe that opens the door to the idea of, well, if alcohol has negative effects like alcoholism and other drunk driving and things, maybe we should tax alcohol like we tax cigarettes to the point where maybe people will find it's too expensive and not consume it. And so I think some people think that you might open the door to get people going down that path where you actually try to tax it to a level that you discourage people to, to consume it. I don't think we would end up going there, but I have heard that raised as, a, as an issue, that we should treat it just like cigarettes. 
Well, yeah. You could legalize marijuana and tax it, right? And then you kill two birds with one stone. And, and I can terrible. tell you, if that works out well in Colorado and Washington State, it'll you know when the money comes, they'll be doing it here in Indiana well, once another state proves it works. Well, so why do you hate that idea? Oh, uh, that's a terrible idea because marijuana <laughs> is uh, a substance that people can get addicted to. One out of eleven people who smoke it will get addicted. And it's ridiculous to make something legal. We already have alcohol. It's a controlled substance um, that we have regulations for. We would definitely need regulations for marijuana. Now, okay, so in this bill, at least at some point, Senator Steele was talking about decriminalizing marijuana. Is that still in there? It, w- it was never part of our okay. project, and, and that was a little frustrating because the media just loved that oh, issue. Oh, we did love that story. They loved that issue, and you could ask all the time about it. And, and w- it was pretty clear to us that there was not support in the General Assembly, at least at this point, to do anything on that, you know, decriminalize it. And uh, so I think Senator Steele decided he would um, attempt to do it on his own. And I think my understanding was the leadership in the Senate kind of said, we don't really want to deal with that issue this year. So you okay. got pushed back on it. Okay. All right. But the good thing about the bill is they are lowering the penalties and graduating them for possession of marijuana, possession mm-hmm. of cocaine, and possession of methamphetamine because, we're, like I said earlier, and Representative Pierce, they're locking folks up, not providing treatment. Right. That, that, is, the, that is the biggest thing is we're, we're kind of rolling back that war on drugs mm-hmm. where we put people away for 20 years right. for possessing four grams of some substance. Yeah. Is that something uh, – I mean, how much control of, of the, some of these penalties do you have at the state level? Um, a hundred percent, or are, are some of those federally mandated? Some sentencing? No. No, mo- most of it's it's pretty much all under state control. I mean, you can be charged with some federal drug crimes, and then you're just in the federal system. That's up to Congress. Mm-hmm. But most all of these crimes are state level crimes. Okay, great. So there's a great deal of uh, right. We have a lot of discretion. Levity or. Not levity. Wrong word. Go on. <laughs> Leverage. That's Leverage, right. yes. Our, our conversation today is about the, uh, the important and uh, sweeping changes that could come down with the criminal code, uh, re- reforms in the criminal code um, this year in the legislature. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or outside of the local area. The number is one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and you can join the live chat at wfiu.org. I wanted to reiterate a couple of numbers I heard before we started. Um, the percentage that Joe mentioned: seventy nine percent of of people in the in the Department of Correction are have chronic addictions. So this is that's four out of five people who are in the prison system have, a, if my math is right, have a chronic addiction, and so this bill is trying to, to aim at them and provide more um, more treatment. And then the other thing, what Linda said before, I just want to make sure I heard this right. 45 probation officers with caseloads of 100 to 120. Right. That's on the adult side. Now, juvenile probation officers have a lower caseload, mm-hmm. which they should. They're, they, they're in the neighborhood of 30, which is right about what it should be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, our adult officers here are right about 100 to 120. But in other counties, like I'll talk, I talked to Tippecanoe County, for example, we're always compared to West Lafayette. Mm-hmm. Their caseloads average about 250. So uh, quite a bit more than ours, and, yeah. and it's not unusual in other counties where it might be as many as three, three fifty on an adult caseload. Wow. So, so if, am I correct to sort of extrapolate and say that means that we have forty five hundred to five thousand people on probation? In Monroe County? In Monroe County, we have about 2,000 okay. uh, ad- adult offenders okay. on probation at any given time. Okay. What are the recidivism rates in Monroe County, and how do they compare to other counties? Well, that's something we don't measure. We don't have <laughs> – unfortunately, we don't have a database. Uh, we, and probation Department has a DOS-based system. We basically count things by hand. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> we'll re- replace that sometime this year. But uh, we don't have anything, any way to study that at this point. But we have had our drug court evaluation for example, and that has been shown to reduce recidivism by 66%. That's huge to be able to reduce recidivism right. by that much uh, of an amount. So would you like to see a, a, an expanded drug court um, style uh, effort as opposed to the effort that this bill is is promoting? I don't think it's really necessarily an either or. I think problem solving courts are just it's just another tool in the toolbox. And, mm-hmm. and we've we have found that with problem solving courts, you ha- the offenders have to have enough hanging over their head to be motivated to do all the extra. It's not easy to be in drug court. Mm-hmm. They come to court every week. They ha- they have to get drug tested three to five times a week, sometimes more. Um, they, they start out on day reporting. It's a lot of work to be in drug court. So it's not for everybody. So I, I think it's just one of the tools in the arsenal, but it's not an either or. We really need what, what Matt's talking about 
actually the intensive supervision as well as uh, as the the more problem solving courts. I agree. We need more problem solving courts in the state, but definitely complementary. Okay. Actions. So, okay. All right. So if you have any thoughts or uh, ideas about proposed reforms to the criminal code, we want to hear from you. You can call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And you can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Anything going on in the live chat? Um, is it quiet over there? It's pretty quiet. I think people are – maybe Bloomington folks yeah. are uh, thinking about getting packed for spring break today. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. Could I follow up on a, a question? You, you mentioned something about recidivism. I and, wish you would. And um, just to let you know, it, it does cost money to get – when we got our drug court evaluated, it cost uh, – we had built it into our grant. It was about $25,000 to get an outside evaluation. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But that was something that was required of us to do when we got a federal grant. And they told us we should have budgeted up to 50000 for that evaluation. So it costs money to get evaluated. But we are at this point, the probation department, we got money from the Monroe County and Bloomington Foundation mm-hmm. to study our effectiveness with, we just started a new program. It's cognitive behavioral workbooking with offenders. It's through the change companies. So all of our juvenile officers were trained in the change companies because it was a juvenile grant that we got. Mm-hmm. It, but we were able to train a few adult officers. So uh, we are going to study uh, the effect of the officers who use that kind of work booking and cognitive behavioral restructuring versus the probation officers who do traditional, what you call traditional line work. So we are going to study that. And thank you, Bloomington Monroe uh, County uh, Foundation, for funding that study. All right. We have a phone call. Let's go to uh, Dan. Dan, uh, I'm told you were recently released from prison. Right now. Go right ahead. Hello. uh, I've been listening to uh, to your program. And um, Monroe County, they do have a lot, a lot to offer people. But um, and the probation officers here, they they do try. They do what they can with what they've got. Um, but the prison I was in, there were, you know, they're sending people there for things that uh, that I mean, for, for driving, for instance, not a drinking and driving, but driving. You know, having to get back and forth to work. And, you know, they're, they're having to, they're getting a habitual offender charge for this. And, you know, having to do three to four years and going to the prisons, level two prisons where, you know, I, there's blood on the floor every single day at the place I was at. And, um, you know, there's just no sense in, in, in people that, that uh, that's not a direct threat to society to go to a place like that. Um, what percentage of people there, you know, with you, do you think really shouldn't have been there? A high percentage? Um, I would say at least 70%. Really? Wow. It's, some people did belong there. I yeah. mean, you know, some really did. Uh, there was, like, uh, I think you had worded earlier, straight predators and of course, murderers, rapists, child molesters, but, you know, you throw somebody in there who, you know, had possession of um, some kind of drug, possession of a prescription pill, or, um, you know, ha- has an addiction problem. And, and like you guys said, there, by the time you get to DOC, there's no time for you to get any type of treatment. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly... They're not going to quit anyway until you want to quit. Uh, the programs they have there, the main reason people get into them is to get, you know, you get 90-day time cuts, 60-90 day time cuts for completing these programs. Mm-hmm. And uh, they pretty much, unless you, like, break a, a major offense there, they're going to push you through the program. Yeah. What? Um, what? If you don't mind me asking, what what sent you there, Dan? Excuse me. What were What were you charged with? What What were you convicted of? Um, possession of cocaine. Okay. Did you receive treatment while incarcerated? I didn't have time. Ah. Uh, okay. So, Matt, how would how would Dan's uh, how would his offense be handled under the new 
Right. In, in the drug area, this is where there's really significant progress. I mean, we really do pretty much roll back the war on drugs. I mean, for example, right. if uh, in Indiana, if I can keep my numbers straight here, if you have more than three grams of, say, something like cocaine, you're... 3.5, I believe, is, and then it's a, uh, it, they bump it to a dealing, I believe, if yeah. you have more than 3.5 grams. I mean, essentially a drug crime in Indiana that might get you um, 20, 30 years in prison in Ohio will get you four. I mean, that's right. how disproportionate. And in Chicago, you know, you're out in a week. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and so the the point is is to try to get at people's underlying addictions so they don't feel need to have to be involved in that trade and and consume and possess and and um, you know putting people in jail for twenty years is not the way to do that. Right now, see with the drug the drug thing though, you do have to be taken out of an element to where you can get drugs because if somebody can find a way to get them and you're a full blown addict, you are going to get them. I mean I, that's. That's bottom line. It's so. I mean, but the amount of freedom taken away is, you know, for for somebody who's addicted to drugs is it's wasting a lot of taxpayers' money. Where, um, say, somebody that is a skilled profession and has a skilled profession is uh, gets arrested for possession of marijuana or possession of whatever whatever drug um you know get this person help uh drug test them three to four times a week or you know and be hard on but then make them make them work mm-hmm. dan do you mind my asking how available were drugs in prison when you were there um it w- would be hit and miss mm-hmm. and I mean, you could probably almost always find something if you if you wanted it. Mm-hmm. And it, I assume if you had something to trade. Okay, I want to get Jill and and uh, Linda to react to some of the things that you've said. Okay. Well, I think he, he makes a good point. Treatment not available. We're paying twenty two thousand five hundred dollars a year to house someone in DOC, and the money that they can save by diverting folks to the local community is just a huge solution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I would agree as well that uh, I, someone like him probably would be more of appropriate uh, for a drug court or problem-solving court and, and be tr- uh, go to treatment and live in the community, contribute to the community. Also could even be living at someplace like Amethyst House, a, a halfway house where it would be a, a sober living environment, which would also increase their likelihood of success. Mm -hmm. Okay, Dan, we're going to have to let you go, but we really appreciate your calling in. Okay. All right. Thanks. 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348, and the live chats, wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have two more callers. Angela's first. Angela? Yes, I'm here. My question is, what ideas do you have to improve employment opportunities for ex-offenders and um, also to piggyback on Dan, um, he was, you know, saying that uh, transportation is an issue once you take somebody uh, who uh, gets um, a drunk driving conviction or uh, something like that and is a habitual offender and you take, you take away their driver's license, then uh, people don't have um, means of getting, they get arrested even if they're not consuming that time for, for driving without a license and trying to get to work. Um, so ideas for, you know, increasing um, the ability of, you know, mobility, transportation to get to work, and then um, just the sheer, um, once you have a felony conviction, um, you know, ideas on how to get jobs, because that is, seems to be, um, you know, people can't uh, get jobs, um, can't, uh, you know, when they people come here from the DOC to Bloomington, um, you know, there's not um, any funding available for housing. Um, and, uh, you know, they end up, um, you know, at our homeless shelters and um, our winter shelters, and um, they don't have the money to uh, have not only housing, but also um, to even pay their probation fees, mm-hmm. you know, and it just becomes a vicious cycle. They, they, they are in debt from this, the, the get-go, um, and I think that uh, is problematic. Jill? Well, I would say alcoholics and addicts don't get sick alone, so it's going to take a community of partnerships to try and address all these issues. 
and employment is huge. And I'll let Matt talk about that. Yeah, the, I, we definitely took a look at those issues because um, they call those re-entry programs, and DOC's begun to work on things where um, you're not, particularly people who have been in prison a long time, if you just kind of say, okay, you're, you're done now with your sentence, you're free here, you open the door, well, you've got no place to stay, you've got no job, and so you need to have some transition built into that system. We tried to to see if we could integrate something into the system that would ensure that everyone who goes into the Department of Corrections would have this kind of step-down or transitional movement into the communities. And the difficulty we had is the only mechanism we have at the moment is we would have to order the judges to suspend some amount of the sentence at the end, and that basically means you come into, you know, a probation or parole, perhaps, in that scenario, but some kind of supervision. The problem is just politically, if you have a bill and you say we're ordering the judges to suspend everyone's sentence, even if you're, let's say you're the worst criminal ever and you serve 45 years in prison, right, what we would be saying is you got to suspend the last several months of that sentence so that they can have that kind of gradual adjustment back into society. But politically, it's hard to explain, well, why would you want to order a judge to take some time off of a really terrible person's sentence? And so we couldn't figure out yet how to make that happen mechanically. And then the other part of it, which we are addressing in separate legislation, which other members have been interested in, is this whole issue of people having felonies on their records and mm-hmm. the background checks and how this often automatically eliminates them from consideration for any job. And so there's been legislation moving to try to deal with that issue. Okay, Angela, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate that that information. I'd be interested to hear what the legislation is and maybe if they could put they could put that um on <clears throat> on your website um to find out what kind of uh, legislation uh, they are proposing to um um, you know, with background checks, because I do think that that's a huge problem. For our our producer is, is saying yes, she will, she will get that done. <laughs> okay, well, thank it, you. Yeah, two things I wanted to say to follow up. I mean, one is the, the criminal records expungement portion of the mm-hmm. bill. And, of course, as a journalist, ah, that kind of worries me a little bit in some ways. So. Right, well, and, and that, that expungement issue is actually not in the in 1006, the big reform bill. Those bills are actually tracking separately, and those have been – getting debated and worked on and some stuff done for the last three or four years. And we went from legislators really pretty much refusing to vote for that because they didn't want to have that soft on crime direct mail Mm -hmm. piece hit them in the middle of the election (laughs) season to now where we've got it up to the point where people are willing to at least take that risk to get some expungement and things in place. Mm -hmm. But it is kind of a complicated issue. I mean, the basic thing we're trying to say is that if you served your time, if you remain a productive member of society, you don't get in trouble for some period of time, we're going to allow you a mechanism for you to kind of get that felony hidden away and allow you to check that I am not a felon when they ask you that on the on the box. So you have a chance to at least be considered for the job. Mm-hmm. Now, it does get complicated because people say, well, you know what? We're in the Internet world. People mm-hmm. can just Google it up, and they're going to know from the newspaper story mm-hmm. that's still online in the archive that you got arrested. And there are companies that collect that information for employers. So now we've had a bill that tries to – deal with that side of it. And then, of course, the Hoosier State Press Association will say, we think that's a public record. It should be available to everyone. So there are lots of um, competing um, priorities in there. It's complicated, yeah. One other thing I wanted to mention before we go to our next caller, and that is, you know, the idea about um, cutting some time off the end of of the worst felon's um, sentence, it just seems to me that that you – and maybe you're addressing that in here, is that right now, you know, we just did big, big stories on a guy who was sentenced to 60 years and got out in 25. So if, you know, it, it seems as if you can get out in 25 now if you're sentenced to 60 and now you're going to reduce it even more, that is going to be a tough political uh, animal to Right. Well, the other thing we didn't talk about is we – the credit time is significantly reduced in this bill. And, you know, we've adjusted the sentences to take that into account. But now we call it the certainty in sentence provision. So now instead of getting 50 percent, you know, off your sentence automatically if you behave yourself kind of one day for one day, now you're going to have to serve 75 percent of your sentence. The ability to earn credit time by participating in some programs is getting cut from four years to two years. And we really looked at at all of that because what we were really hearing from the public and the prosecutors, this was their biggest complaint. They said, we're frustrated because we can't really tell the victim how long someone's actually going to be in prison because you – you have a sentence, and then it's automatically half of the sentence, and then they can earn additional time, and it's mm-hmm. difficult to know. And we closed a lot of loopholes. So one example was 
if you get sentenced to prison and let's say you um, have only three credit hours left to get a, a bachelor's degree, if you finished up that three credit hours in uh, prison, you would get like a multiple number, you know, you get a mm. huge amount off your sentence as if you had done a whole hundred and 24 credit hours, whatever, in prison, and that wasn't intended. So we tried to take care of some of those loopholes, mm-hmm. and and I think that we, we've kind of got the right balance on the certainty and sentencing part of it. Okay, we have a couple callers we're going to try to get to in the last three minutes of the program. Phil is in French Lick. Phil, go ahead. Uh, yes, I've been listening to this, and it sounds like uh, almost everything you folks have talked about is going to be amazingly expensive. Well, I don't have any more tax money to give you guys. So you need to economize in a big way. Uh, For 40 years, we've been fighting this war on drugs. And uh, a child today with a $50 bill can go out and buy an amazing array of drugs after 40 years of the war on drugs and uh, enormous amounts of money spent, lives ruined. The whole thing is just nuts. I'm not a drug user, but, uh, but it's crazy. And, and I look for leadership from my government officials, and I'm not seeing any that I'm impressed with. I look at California, look at Illinois, New York, uh, several other states are on the verge of bankruptcy. And yet they're pursuing these draconian uh, policies that are literally bankrupting their states. And everything that you folks have said here today that I have heard, and I haven't heard the entire program, is going to be incredibly expensive. We don't have that much money. Okay, Phil, I'm going to let uh, give Matt right. just 10 sec- 15 seconds to, to answer. Well, we, we are basically ro- rolling back the war on drugs, and, and Linda can probably talk to this. This is the great thing about this. The more effective approach is cheaper than warehousing people in prison. So we will save taxpayers tens of millions of dollars if we get this implemented correctly. Okay. I want to go to Rose and give her a chance to, uh, to ask us her question or give us her comment. Rose? Yeah. Um, am I on? Yeah, very quickly, All right. please. Well, the, the Dan touched on this. I think one area that needs to be addressed at the state level is this very heavy-handed approach by the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. You know, I know of two individuals whose licenses were suspended because they were late on child support. And so here they are, no license, can't get to work. Mm-hmm. One of them had to drop out of IU. Uh, very, know, Rose, very quickly. Yeah, we only have about 10 seconds to okay, go. So. well... Don't take away somebody's driver's license so they can't work if they're trying to make child support payments. That's my point. Okay. Thanks for your comment. I'm sorry I have to cut you off. And, Bob, let me just say in five seconds or less that Title IX, which are all the motor vehicle crimes, is going to get reviewed this summer. That's that's another piece to come, and we need to straighten that out, too. Okay. I want to thank Linda Brady and Matt Pierce and Joe Matheny-Fuqua for being here with us today. Uh, For Mary Catherine Carmichael, our producers Gretchen Frazee and Julie Raw, and engineer Mike Pashka. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, and thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.